Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. How you doing, Ben? Good. The, the weather's great here today, so I'm excited. Awesome. We've also got, uh, in rainy Montreal, Graham Blake. Graham, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Um, does it rain a lot in Montreal in the summertime? Actually, no. This is highly unusual. It's usually just nice and sunny every day. Oh, wow. Good, good day to be inside in a podcast. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Hey, so have you guys met before, uh, Graham and Ben? Do you guys know each other? Yeah, we talked yes. on the phone. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to figure that, uh, that out, actually, Graham. What, what, did, did I reach out to you, or did you reach out to me? I can't remember how we started communicating. I think you reached out to me, actually. Um, I oh. was... I knew who you were, and then I think you emailed me, either you found my email course or the explanations or something. Um, maybe it was Reddit. Uh, I, I oh, might have yeah. mentioned you in like this, I was doing this thing on Reddit of like independent LSAT courses. I, I forget why, but you sent me an email and then we did a phone call. Yeah. So um, after we met, uh, I've started using Graham's explanations for the uh, the most recent tests uh, was actually now it's 62 and up, right, Graham, I think. So um, yeah. that's been really helpful for people after they take a test. So, um, yeah, that's my my familiarity with Graham. It's been good so far. But we've never met in person. You're too far away, I guess. Yeah. For the yeah, listeners, if, if anybody doesn't know who Graham is, Graham teaches LSAT in Montreal, and he's also the author of a series of explanations that are all available on Amazon. Um, I think if you just search for either Graham Blake or if you search for Hacking the LSAT, you'll find all of those LSAT explanations. And how many of those have you done now, Graham? Uh, so on Amazon, there's about 20 different sets. And the, the names I'm shifting the name of the books to LSAT Hacks slowly. Okay to match my site. Um, there's about 20 books on Amazon and there's 10 more that are available on LSAT blog and a couple other places, but that I want to, to modernize before I put them in book form. So about, but about 30 overall, probably by the end of the year will be available publicly on like Amazon or my site. That's 30 full tests. 30, so 30 full tests explained out of 72. Cool. Are you planning, are you working your way backward? Are you planning to do like all of them? Um, I think I'm going to do 52 to 61. Uh, no, sorry. Yeah, that's right, number 52 to 61. Um, and then I don't know yet if I'm going to do the sort of gap between... I, I wrote 29 to 38, so there's a gap of 39 to 51. I may or may not do that. I'll see how people respond to the, the other ones I write. Cool. So I'm, I'm interested... Um, we got to know each other, obviously, because we're in the same business, and we've we've chatted a little bit on the phone before. But um, for the listeners, I think they might be intrigued to know what the life of an LSAT instructor. There aren't that many people who do what we do, like just doing LSAT yeah. full time. So what's what's your day to day like? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say that probably the day to day of the three of us, me certainly, because I've kind of shifted away from teaching, is maybe different from most LSAT instructors. I think there's probably a lot of LSAT instructors we haven't heard of who are, you know, just like an LSAT guy in Miami who's got a private practice and does a lot of tutoring at 100 to $150 an hour, something along those lines, and that's their full-time thing, either in between things or they've been doing it for 10 years, um, and they probably just do a lot of lessons. In my case, I like the idea of selling products, like stuff that doesn't actively 
make me do work. So my day-to-day is actually, it's a lot of writing or whatever I'm working on at the time. So when I'm writing a book, it's really nothing but either looking at an LSAT test, looking at each question, writing an explanation, or proofreading it, which involves me talking to myself out loud, reading <laughs> the entire wow. book manuscript uh, over to see how it how it sounds, because I, I like to write how I speak, more or less, and just kind of have a simple, direct approach. Um, but then there's also a lot of administration. Like, I'm, I'm putting these books up for free on my website, but I'm not the one that does that. I... I wrote up every step involved when I was doing it myself and I uh, trained someone else to follow those instructions and he's the one now posting all the other sets of explanations to my site. So there's, there's some management of people who do like book design or uh, posting to the site and other stuff that I've outsourced so that I can focus more on the LSAT stuff, which is my specialty. So, um, Giving away your explanations, uh, explain how that makes money. Yeah, so what I noticed within the LSAT niche, there's been like a long tradition of people giving away good free stuff and then building a business on top of that. If you look at, I think LSAT blog might have been the originator. Um, he's got tons of good free material and then he also sells stuff on his blog and that's how he makes money. But you could not, you could use LSAT blog's material very successfully and not ever give him a cent and he'd still be happy because you'd probably be talking about LSAT blog or referring him other people that would buy things and then Seven Sage and Law Schoolie have done the same thing where Seven Sage had a bunch of logic games explanations and they also happen to have an LSAT course and Law Schoolie uh, has a lot of good free information and they make money in other ways through their site and I kind of wanted to try the same thing um, the, the hardest part when you make something is like no one knows about it. I had these books, but not that many people would hear about them unless they found them on Amazon. Whereas by putting them for free, I'm getting a larger audience that uh, people are still buying the print books, um, but now they're buying some PDF versions on the site or contacting me for tutoring. And I'm eventually hoping to make some kind of product to sell on the site as well, like a, a course or something like that. So the email course that you have, um, that's free. How, how does that work? Yeah, so that um, if someone signs up for that, then they basically just get five emails from me that I think it's intro to the LSAT. Then I talk about logical reasoning, logic games, and reading comprehension. The order might be different. And then they get an email telling them how to do like further study. And then they get a few more emails. Like One, I just ask them how I can help them. Another one sends a blog post I wrote on like the top five things I learned. Um, so it's mostly just free information. And at a certain point, then when I do make a course, I can use that kind of a list to to then say like, hey, here's this course. Because once people have gotten useful information from me, then they'll might be interested in a course too, fitting with that same free strategy. But right now, it, it was just an easy way to like send people a lot of helpful information that doesn't require me to actually like actively teach them. I can just set it on autopilot and gotten some really good feedback on the course. And it's, it's cool that I, you know, once I write it once, I don't have to do anything. Right. Right. So how much one-on-one are you doing then these days? Not that much. I've, I've actually only got like three or four students at the moment. It's kind of the low season here in Canada anyway. Um, but I, I mostly just do it all on Saturdays and then I'm more focused on the 
the writing and other website stuff during the rest of the week. Interesting. Why is this the low season? I mean, I think for both Ben and I, this is like the high season. So why is this the low yeah. season in Canada? So what I've noticed with tutoring students, because you guys do a lot of classes, right? That's Is that like your mainstay compared to tutoring? Uh, for me, yeah, I would say that classes are 90% of what I do, but I, I, I've been doing more and more one-on-one -on -one stuff as well. Yeah. I don't know, Ben, what about you? Yeah, it's it's the bulk of it is classes, but I'd say it may be 70-30, 70% classes, 30% one-on-one, and that's shifting more towards one-on-one, -on -one, but... Yeah, you guys can let me know if you've noticed different trends with the one-on-one, -on -one, but my impression is that classes and books come earlier in the cycle than tutoring does. Tutoring is something people often do when they're like, ugh, this isn't working. I've been studying for like three months and I'm stuck. I better hire a tutor. Um, whereas a class or a book is something people do like right at the start when they just want to learn about the test. Um, at least at my price point. I think some people will hire tutors like if they're charging like 40 or $50 an hour to sort of like teach them the whole test. But I tend to only get requests from people that have been in it for like three to six months and they tell me like they're constant, they're blocked and they need help. I don't think that's like the majority of LSAT students. Most people, people seem to come to me with a much higher level of knowledge about what the test is than like the median student. Um, and when I teach classes, those usually happen like way earlier than, tutoring. Have you guys noticed anything similar with uh, with one-on-one -on -one stuff? Uh, I I do think that I guess one-on-one -on -one students can start closer to the test, but I, st I also feel like I, I get a lot of one-on-one -on -one students who are, I don't know, want to start one-on-one -on -one tutoring because the class doesn't start early enough for them. So I guess uh, it, to me it seems a little mixed. Uh, I feel like they kind of come at the same though, time. Though, wait, though they already would have heard, heard of you because they like saw about your classes, right? You know, I, I'm not exactly sure how, how everyone comes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. I, yeah, I, for anyone, uh, it's, it's amazing to me sometimes like how little we know because if someone like trained in the LSAT and logic and skepticism, if someone asks me like, is this a good strategy? Often I'm like, uh, Maybe I <laughs> I have no data, um, and in terms of like how people find me, I, my data is also kind of crappy too. I but I don't I don't really have a local market in Montreal. There's it's it's a French city. They don't really take the LSAT, so most of my students are from Skype, and they might find me uh, later in a cycle because I'm not I'm not actively marketing classes. So there may be a difference in like. The types of people that find us at different times, but I really don't know. What about you, Nathan? Um, yeah, I get. I guess I get two different types of tutoring students. I, I definitely get the student who has had a class previously and is blocked, as you say, Graham, and just needs help getting unstuck. And um, those come all sorts of different times. But yeah, I guess I see what you mean. That like, if this is the big bulk of the year for classes, then maybe the big bulk of those blocked tutoring students might come in a little bit later in the cycle or a little closer to the test. I also get, though, I mean, I think one of the reasons why people choose tutoring 
over a class is that they really want the convenience of it. They want it to be on their own schedule because they've got work or school or work and school and they've got the resources to pay for the tutoring. And so they, they're yep. just using tutoring as, a, as an alternative to taking a class in the first place that they just decided that they want to work one-on-one yep. -on -one with somebody. Yeah, I think you guys also, okay, San Francisco and Washington, both are cities that have a pretty high income average and you've got like a significant chunk of rich people. Whereas like in Montreal, I don't, there are some, but a lot of my students that I would like hear from early on, uh, the price point they're expecting in Canada is usually like half of that in the States. And since I can get tutoring students from the States, I, I just sort of priced myself out of the, the local market. I could probably be, be doing more tutoring at this point of the year if, if tutoring was my priority and I did like a lower rate that matched like the market here. But it, it really hasn't been what I've been focusing on. So um, I want to talk to you about Canada and the LSAT. Um, Canadians have it easy. <laughs> why, why? Why do you say that? Uh, just the, the median scores are so much lower and the number of crappy schools is so much smaller. We're having, uh, I don't want to cut you off, by the way, were you just going to ask about like, no, Canada? No, that's great. No, go, go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so in the States, there's been this massive bubble in the number of law schools that's been matched by a downturn in the number of law jobs. And it's kind of a scary environment where if you just like get a median LSAT score and go to the school that accepts you, you might be ruining your life. Um, financially, certainly. Yeah, financially. Uh, I mean, not to say that's always the wrong decision, but you definitely need both eyes open. Whereas in Canada, if you just get like the median score and get into a school and graduate, like that's that's okay. You're you're not set up for catastrophe, even if like you don't want to do law and want to switch, or it's a lot less precarious. Whereas you can end up in the states with like one hundred sixty thousand dollars debt and realize that no one wants to hire you if you don't look at the actual numbers. Whereas in Canada, you pretty much just have the luxury of like if a school lets you in, then someone will want to hire you for the most part. Is the tuition cheaper as well? A lot cheaper. In Ontario, you're starting to see the trend. That's the, the biggest province in Canada and where they have the most law schools, about six. Most other Canadian provinces just have one. So if you want to be a lawyer in Saskatchewan, you should go to the law school in Saskatchewan and that's, that's it. Um, there's no, that's your only choice and it's a good choice. Um, Ontario's actually got enough schools that there are some schools that you might not want to go to. And they've also been, I think they've about doubled their class sizes. So there's a bit of a bubble in Ontario where uh, in Canada, you can't just start out and be a lawyer. You have to do something called articling. That's where it's, it's kind of like an internship, but you're paid maybe like two thirds of a starting legal salary. And basically you're doing legal work, but someone else is signing off on it. So you're not the one ultimately responsible if there's a mistake, which is a good kind of training wheels. Um, but as far as jobs are concerned, if you don't get an articling position, you can't be a lawyer. And articling is kind of a cost center for firms. They've got to take someone on who doesn't know what they're doing and pay them and manage their work and so on. So the big firms do it because it's the way that they get people hired. But smaller firms often don't do it because it's really hard if you're just one lawyer to take on an articling student. And... 
So the, there hasn't really been any growth in articling positions to match the growth in law graduates in Ontario. So they've had new grads there have a bit of difficulty, even from the good schools. Uh, I'm not really sure how it is in other provinces, but I haven't heard as many tales of woe from there. But generally speaking, you could go to law school for maybe between $13,000 and $17,000 or less or more. depends on where you are. So it's a lot less than the $40,000 per year you'd pay at a, at a U.S. school. Interesting. I have a, we got a note from a reader or a listener um, named Marcus who wrote in to say that he, he says he has a 2.7 GPA and his assessment of the acceptance rates at Canadian schools was that with a 2.7, he has like no chance at a Canadian school. I'd say that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, so the flip side to having all of the schools be pretty good bets is you just can't get into a school with low grades. Um, the, the, L, the median LSAT's lower, but the median grades are at least as high and probably higher. Like You generally want at least a 3.7 out of a 4.3. Um, it can be a bit tricky because some schools have 4.0, so there a 3.5 would be the equivalent. Um, you have to check those numbers using the conversion formula. It's a bit more complicated. But yeah, the, the, the average GPAs are generally pretty high. But you can get into schools with an LSAT between 160 and 165. That will get you into some of the best schools in the country. University of Toronto is the one exception where their median is 168. But even that's sort of low for compared to basically the top three in the States is what that would be the local equivalent of. So do Canadian schools weight GPA more highly? Uh, it's a bit hard to say because unlike, so you've got, in the States, you've got this U.S. News and World Report thing, which <laughs> explicitly ranks all the schools based largely on GPA and LSAT. We have no such thing. We don't even have really a ranking. Um, so schools are pretty free to do what they want. For instance, McGill, which is one of the top two, basically doesn't care about the LSAT. They don't even require it if you don't take it because they have enough French applicants. They have enough French applicants that it's not a fair measure. They've got about 20% and it just wouldn't measure them accurately. I actually got turned down. I, I ended up in McGill as a transfer student, but I got turned down when I applied because I, I had a 177 LSAT, but my GPA was only 3.7. So, well, yeah, how they weight LSAT and GPA, they'll say what they, some of them will publicly say what they do, but we don't really know. Some of them don't even say what their median LSAT score is. Um, so it's a lot, I think the schools have a lot more flexibility. In practice, they probably have like rough cutoff numbers for LSAT and GPA, below which they'll basically check to see if the application is exceptional in some other way. And if it isn't, they're probably on the wait list or rejected. But it's not, it's not a clear process. But you can, uh, probably the best thing to do is there's a form called lawstudents.ca, which is the local equivalent of top law schools, and they have a lot of good information on like what your chances are at a given school based on past experience and hearsay. Good to know. I, I uh, yeah, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I, I had no idea that law school was so much more competitive in Canada. I can see how that does make it a better value. Like once you can get in you're much more assured of making a career yeah. out of it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, the Canadian equivalent of your crappy bubble schools is going to law school in Australia or the UK. 
and you're not going to an Australian or a UK law school, you're going to a law school opened in Australia that caters to Canadians, if that distinction makes sense. So they're sort of like overflow schools um, that give you a Canadian degree in Australia. Hmm. But then you have to go through a mess of getting accredited and it's pretty clear why you went to Australia. It's because you couldn't get into a Canadian school. So it's a, it's a pretty big black mark for hiring. Maybe that'll change, but I would not recommend going to one of those schools at present. So stepping back a little bit here, when Marcus first wrote us, my initial reaction to his GPA was that doesn't matter. But it sounds like in Canada, it's completely the opposite, that the GPA no, yeah. is more important <laughs> and that the LSAT score is not really that important. Yeah, that's, I'd say that's pretty true. I'm just looking at this Canadian law school profiles thing, which is, I don't know how accurate this is, but the GPA's average GPA, it's like 3.7, 3.7, 3.7, 3.8, 3.57, and that's probably out of four. 3.9, 3.8, 3 3.46 in Saskatchewan. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much all about 3.7. It's, and actually, I guess I didn't, I don't know enough about U.S. admissions to know that that's not, like say we're going, a lot of people say T14 only. If you were going, which I think is sort of the equivalent of all of the schools in Canada, um, would you need a 3.7 to get into the T14? I would, is that high even for that? I would say that's high even for that. I mean, at some schools like UC Berkeley, they care about grades more than other schools care about grades. But I, I would just say that if you can get a 170 anything, you're going to be a candidate for T14 pretty much regardless of what your GPA is. That's interesting. And is that out of a 4.3 scale? Uh, no, 4.0 scale. Ah, okay, so think 3.5 when you hear 3.7. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, then that, that probably is, is, is kind of close. I mean, I don't, although I think low threes here, you would still probably have a chance with a you know, yeah. 178 and a 3.1, I think you probably still have a chance. Yeah. Um, I'll just add a note that for anyone listening whose uh, future depends on this stuff, um, look at the actual grade conversion formulas on these GPAs because I say 3.7 is like 3.5, but it gets pretty complicated when you look at how LSAT calculates GPAs and OLSAS in Canada and schools individually. So Does that work the same way, Graham, that they have to... Um, sign up for the LSAC credential assembly service, upload all their transcripts, and then the LSAC tells them what their GPA is? Um, yeah, there, so in Ontario, there's a common service called OLSAS. They might have changed your name to UAC. Um, they, they take all of your grades, they do a conversion, and then you can apply to any of the six Ontario schools the same way as you can apply to a bunch of schools through LSAC. Every other school in Canada is completely separate, and they have their own process. So do Canadians not even use the LSAC Credential Assembly Service, then? No, not at all. Okay, that's just an American thing. And they, Yeah, they have to get LSAC to send it to the schools. Well, so, I can't remember if they use Credential Assembly to send it to the schools or not, but I don't think so. You certainly don't send your transcripts to LSAC for Canada. Uh, Graham, so how do people do the conversions? You, you've um, mentioned that a couple of times. I'm just curious. Is there like a website that someone yeah. can go? Um, it's Again, it's school dependent. So like I have no idea how it works if you're applying in Saskatchewan or Alberta. But I've just sent a, a chat thing to the, to the group that's the old SAS conversion from the 
UAC, which is the oh, Ontario yeah, organization. See. Yeah, which that's the Ontario organization that uh, does this for the six schools in Ontario. And they actually have, if you see at the bottom, those are all of the Canadian universities. We're small enough that they can just list the universities and it tells you what column you go in. So I went to Mount Allison, that's a seven. So they have a grade conversion for the letter grades on a seven. So at my school, an A plus was equal to four. But if you were an eight like McGill, then an A is equal to four. Okay. So for these, so, oh, sorry. So I was just going to say for these uh, six schools, we can, we can post this link that you just sent us, I guess. Yeah. That's how it works for all of the six Ontario schools. Um, every other school in the country, completely different system. They may not even have an explicit grade conversion. They might just say, send us your transcripts. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't, I haven't looked into it because there's probably 10 schools outside of Ontario, maybe a bit less, maybe more like seven, but yeah, they would all have their own process. Huh. Wow. This is all news to me, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is definitely news. And um, for the listeners, we will post this to the show notes on thinkinglsat.com, this PDF, if you want to take a look at it. This is like, to me, this looks like the black box because, um, you know, American students have to upload all their transcripts to the LSAC, Credential Assembly Service, and then the Credential Assembly Service adjusts their GPA. But as far as I know, it's not really known what happens to the GPA. It's like they make corrections for things like if you had a PE class that was pass, no pass, whereas someone else had a PE class that was graded, then you have to like make some GPA, you know, just to normalize that somehow. Um, but I don't know that that is all public information on the U.S. side. So this is interesting. Yeah, and I would just like to add a note for anyone listening. If you're going to talk to a admissions consultant, especially for Canadians, it's a good idea not to talk to an American admissions consultant. I think I talked to Anne Levine, and she said she actually doesn't do Canadian consulting because she knows it's different enough that some of the advice that's good advice for the U.S. may be wrong advice, like especially on uh, uh, what are those letters called? No, not letters, um, personal statements. The, the U.S. personal statements tend to be a lot more flowery and heroic than, <laughs> what, the, <laughs> than what the Canadian schools are looking for. In, in Canada, they're actually usually just looking for, hi, this is who I am, and here's why I want to apply to law school. Um, something like that. It's a lot simpler and more straightforward, whereas I've seen the like, sample essays on top law schools that just, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're something very different than what a Canadian school would be looking for. I wonder, we could speculate about why that is. Um, yeah, I mean, it might be volume, it might be American cultural difference, uh, I'm not really sure. Because Americans are so full of shit that we're just used to, <laughs> we're used to just everyone bullshitting. Maybe, maybe. Uh, of course your personal statement says you're the greatest of all time. If it didn't, we would think that you must be really terrible. It's <laughs> a theory, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> Cool. Um, I don't know. Do you have any more questions about the Canada stuff, Ben, or should we switch gears a little bit? No, let's jump into the article. I, th I think it. Uh, I think that could be really interesting for, for everyone. Cool. Okay. So um, I'm just going to – I'll give some backstory. I wrote this post for lawschoolie.com. I did it after – ending like I had just written one set of explanations for some prep tests and I wanted to kind of try and extract 
knowledge I had gotten from writing these things sort of with 30 tests, that's about 3,000 explanation questions explained and maybe like 900,000 words. It, it's a lot of writing. So I figured there was probably something that I had picked up along the way. Um, and I want to take a moment actually to talk about how, learning. Because uh, I've been trying to tell students that they might benefit from either a study partner where they're forced to explain why a question is right, or from just writing an explanation themselves. Because I personally found that I've learned a lot from having to externalize my knowledge and say why this is right and why this is wrong, rather than just having some fuzzy idea in my head of why the right answer is right, which was how I first did the test when I just, I, I got a 177, but it was like, I couldn't have explained anything to you. I just knew something was right. Right. I don't know if that's in the article, but that's that's one big takeaway from doing all this is that I just, it's a lot more routine. I can see patterns in, in the questions that weren't apparent before I went through all these. The article, by the way, because we haven't named it yet, is called uh, Five Things I've Learned from Writing Thousands of LSAT Explanations. Is that right, Graham? Yeah, and I just sent a link to it. It's, uh, that's the only public uh, source on Law Schooly. Yeah, and and I will put that uh, link on the show notes as well. Yeah. And so I'll just go through the... Well, actually, I'll ask, was there anything in particular you guys wanted me to focus on that like jumped out at you, or do you want me to just like go through each of the five things and we can talk about those in turn? Ben? Oh, I would, I would say just... Uh, I would go through all of them. I, I'm assuming the first one is the one that you thought was the most important. Which, which one do you feel is... <laughs> That's a reasonable assumption, but I'm not actually sure. Let me look at them. Uh, I'll just go from top to bottom order. I can't really say what's most important. Um, my first one was I wrote logical reasoning question types really do matter. Because for a time, I actually thought that they didn't matter that much. And it was just the conclusion and reasoning that if you, if you knew the conclusion and reasoning of an argument, then that was the main thing. And that is important. But I've come to think that really having a very clear grasp of what the question types are asking for makes a difference. Because a lot that's going on in this test is throwing so much complexity at you that if you're stuck thinking like, what am I supposed to be doing on this question? You're no longer able to think about doing it because part of your brain is used up trying to think about what to do. And they have, they have patterns that I can't always put into words, but when I see a sufficient assumption question, I often know, for example, that There'll just be some kind of gap in the middle and you need to figure out where the gap is and then say that one end of the gap leads to the other end so that it's connected. And it's really just like read question, understand, find gap, pick answer that fills gap and you're done. And it can be like a 25 second process rather than a minute 15. And that makes all the difference. So... Logical reasoning question types really do matter. Um, I, I like this tip too. I think that where I think it, where it really matters is at the margins. Um, you know, you, Graham, before you ever learned very much about the test, you were able to score in the 170s. Yeah. And so was I. Um, but for the, for the student who's trying to go from 170 to 175, I think it really is critical to know the difference between the question types on the logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. 
um, something like, you know, sure, you see a question and you know it's an assumption question, but you don't know whether it's a necessary or a sufficient assumption question, you can probably still get 90% of those right. But to, to, to move up those last five points that you're trying to get, you really have to know the difference between those two question types because there's going to be a sufficient assumption question where one of the wrong answers is a necessary assumption. Yeah. I've even heard of people like trying to negate the sufficient assumption answers, which right. is just, it's, it's, it, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> and if you're doing that, you're at the very best just wasting time. Awesome. I agree. Um, also, yeah, I think that's a good point about the margins. Like parallel reasoning, I hear so many people complain about like the big, long parallel reasoning questions that I actually don't think are that hard because I know exactly what to look for. If you can find sort of the structural elements that are making up the argument and then sort of, I call this like soft elimination of answer choices. Like I haven't conclusively proved it wrong, but it seems to be mismatching on the way they're making the argument. So I filter it out and look through and then identify like C and E as one to deserve more consideration. So that that saves a lot of reading if I can just narrow down exactly what they're doing in the argument and look to match that. Interesting. Uh, you want to just keep going down the list? Yeah. So reading comprehension, I this was maybe my biggest insight from doing the explanations. It's the most boring explana- uh, section to write explanations for because all I'm doing is just like, uh, line 32 disproves this answer. Line 37 shows that this answer is out of context. This answer is an odd combination of line 17 and 84 in a way the passage never did. Um, what they're really doing in a lot of answers is just throwing things that are vaguely familiar at you. If you didn't like really get the passage, then there's going to be stuff that sounds close, but if you actually look at what the passage says, it has nothing to do with it. And the faster you can get at sort of organizing the passage in your mind so you know where they talk about things, and then A, like being clear on what it says so that you're not tempted by the wrong ones, but B, being able to quickly find the right area so you can prove or disprove an answer actually can speed you up quite a bit um, if you can do it fast. Um, what's your guys' take on looking back at the passage? Because for some people, it, it seems like a big time sink, but when I've personally worked with students, I can get them going like much faster back and forth. I always have an idea roughly of what's in each paragraph. So for example, if there's a list of three reasons why the author prefers plan B to plan A, I might not know exactly what those three reasons were, but I know roughly in the passage where they are. So if a question said, which one of the following was not listed as a reason? I, I would, I think, fairly automatically without even thinking about it, I would look back at the appropriate spot in the passage and I would reread that list and then answer the question fairly quickly. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would add to that too that, like, Sometimes if a question is very specific, if it asks about a particular, not necessarily a phrase, it doesn't have to be a phrase, but just a particular, a very specific idea or set of words um, that are unlikely to appear more than once in the passage, I think it's 
uh, surprisingly easy to scan over the passage and find that phrase. Not that that's um, necessarily where the answer is going to be. It depends on what they're asking and so forth. And a lot of times I think people can get thrown off by that. But um, it surprises me how easy it can be to say, oh, there it is. It's right there in the second paragraph. And then maybe read around it if that's something I, I need to, to refresh my memory on. But Yeah, I think both of those were... Ex- Extremely good points. In fact, if if you had transcribed what Nathan said and then presented it to me and said, like, did you write this? I would have been like, uh, yeah, that, that pretty much sounds like <laughs> that's exactly what I do. And I do the same thing you were talking about there, Ben. Um, in fact, if a question mentions a specific detail but without a line reference, I'll go back and skim it because then I know exactly what's been said. And all those trap answers I talked about, just they're obviously not it. Um, so I think it's a time saver. I like your point about the trap answers, Graham. Um, I think one thing that students do, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but students like to say like, oh, what was the one word in this answer that made you know it was the correct answer? And it's, that's almost never my analysis. Um, I really do read the entire answer choice from front to back, and it's got to be kind of perfect in order for me to pick it. Because a lot of the wrong answers, if you were just scamming the answers looking for a word, it's almost guaranteed that the wrong answers are going to have attractive words in them. I mean, what they do is they, just like exactly what you said, Graham, they take something from line 14 and something from line 70, and they put it in a blender, and then they just like barf out, uh, (laughs) just like, here's a bunch of words, and it can sometimes be totally nonsensical or it can be something that is the exact opposite of what the author was saying in the passage. But if you were going in there just looking for a keyword, you're going you're gonna to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of along the lines of what you were, you were saying. No, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, I think we're all entirely on the same page in terms of how we approach this. So here, so I have a question though. Um, when you say you're going to refer back to the passage, I mean, I said, I think I can refer back to the passage to the appropriate part in the passage almost automatically. Yeah. But how, how does a reader become able to do that? That's the uh, million dollar question. Okay. I don't know for sure because I'm, I'm an extremely fast reader. I don't know about you guys. I think that's something that people who are scoring in the 170s often tend to be. They just have really good reading skills. And that sort of takes a lifetime of learning. I do a bit of work with something called Spreeder, which just sort of trains you to read without subvocalizing. And some people have got like a pretty fast automatic increase in reading speed because I think they kind of had this latent capacity they just weren't using. Others experience no improvement, but even then I think it might help their skimming, which is an important skill for locating information. But I don't really know because it's you can't actually see what someone's doing when they're reading. I mean, maybe you could do like an eye tracking thing to, but it's beyond my ability anyway to know what's going on in the student's head when they're reading a passage and where they're looking and all of that. So... A couple episodes ago, um, Ben and I spent some time at the top of the show talking about reading comprehension, and I thought I learned a lot from 
the discussion that I had with Ben. So here's here's maybe uh, Graham. I just want to bounce this off you and see yeah, if it, it. see if it makes sense to you, because um, this is a relatively new <laughs> idea. But or that at least from from my perspective, I had never thought about it this way before. But Ben and I were talking about how we make predictions about what is going to happen next in the passage as we're reading. And I think it's yeah. something that we both kind of naturally do. Yeah, I think I'm doing that. Okay. And I will also go back and like check if I had some doubt when like I get to a thing, it's not what I predicted. I might go back and like double check to make sure I understood the past thing correctly. Like I'm, I'm always looking for cohesiveness. Okay. Front and back. So I'm wondering if just that habit of, get done with a paragraph and then make a prediction about what you think is likely to come next. I have a feeling that that is related to my ability to just, when I get done reading the passage, I know what was in paragraph one, paragraph two, paragraph three, paragraph four, because I was making these little wagers along the way. Yeah, I think so. Cause that's going to force you to make, like if you're making a prediction of paragraph three, then you have to understand paragraphs one and two in order to do that. And Tell me, when, if you're making this prediction and you realize, like, oh, actually, I don't know, I'm a little fuzzy on paragraph one, will you go back and reread or re-skim paragraph one before you move on? Yeah, I mean, I, I just wouldn't have moved on from paragraph one in the first place, I think, without understanding yeah. what was there. I, I do that, too. Like, I'll, I'll reread, and if at a later point I ever find, like, I have some doubt about it in light of new information, I might go back. I do this in reading novels, too. If I'm at a point, I'm like, wait, why did she say that to him? I'll flip back like five pages and go to the last scene where those two were and look at the context and figure out why something happened. Because if I just keep going, then I'm just going to have all these points of confusion. Yeah, well, I mean, to boil that down into just kind of reading comprehension 101, I've been yelling at my students a lot lately about the idea of don't read sentence number two if you didn't understand sentence number one. Yeah, Because I, mean, I, I think that's what, for the people who are really bad at the reading comprehension, like for the people who are, say, scoring single digits on the reading comprehension, that's, I would guess, the majority of what's going wrong is you're just like, you're not forcing <laughs> yourself, you're not forcing yourself to, to understand what's in the passage. You're just allowing yourself to like read a sentence, not get it, read another sentence, not get that either. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. I just wanted to amend something I said earlier when I mentioned reading speed. I don't want to set that up as like a, oh man, I read slow, like I can never do good at this. Because I'm actually like vastly overshooting reading comprehension. Like I, I get everything right in like, I don't know how many minutes, but I'm just twiddling my thumbs at the end. Like I, um, you don't need to read super, super fast to do well at this. I think like with an average reading speed and good reading skills where you actually like do what we're talking about, like make sure you understand go back and reread a paragraph if you didn't understand, make a prediction, and so on. I think, would you guys agree, like average reading speed can get perfect? Oh, yeah, I would agree. And, and I would add that I think a lot of times people invest a lot of time into the games, which they should, because the games is the easiest section to learn. But then they don't invest as much time in reading comp, and then they sort of conclude that, um, you know, it's a section I can't really improve in. And I, I think it is if you uh, put in the time and you're spending that time well, you're actually working on developing your, your reading and not just some hokey, you know, oh, I'm better at skimming and guessing sort of strategy. But if you're actually trying to develop the skills that Nathan was just talking about, 
and you were talking about in terms of predicting and so forth, even if that takes more time up front, uh, I think it's a skill that people can also improve even in the limited time they have between when they start studying for the test and when they actually take it. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in there that um, I would think even slower than average reading is going to still be fine as long as you're comprehending the stuff that you are reading and you're getting questions right. I mean, let's put aside the idea of scoring perfectly on the reading comprehension because 90 plus percent of people aren't going to score perfectly on the reading comprehension. Um, you can get an above average LSAT score by scoring three perfect passages. You know, three, three perfect passages and guess on the final passage is still going to be like 20 questions correct, which would be well above the class average of any class I've ever taught and well above the average of the people who are actually sitting down for the test. So, you know, sometimes when I see people who read really fast, I mean, I see people who like on the reading comprehension, they're done with five or 10 minutes remaining in the section and then they got 15 correct. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> like that's reading fast, but you're not, you got the reading part, but you didn't got, did not get the comprehension part, which is the more important of the two parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different kind of reading fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's, awesome. that's probably like a good problem to have because you're done reading fast enough that you ought to be able to get the comprehension part up. But, um, it just occurred to me when we were talking about this, that, um, investing a lot of time in the games is useful for the LSAT score. Investing a lot of time in reading comprehension is probably like the single most useful like future life skill you yeah. can do because for anyone involved in an intellectual job, but especially people planning to go to law school and be lawyers, if you understand what you're reading even 20% or 10% better as a result of training for the LSAT, you'll just have like this permanent edge and be better at everything because there's so much reading and so much hard reading involved in the path that you're planning for. Oh, so much reading that's way harder. I think people don't understand, you know, they think like, <laughs> I just have to overcome the reading comprehension on the LSAT and then I'll be done with this. It's like, no, you won't. Because before you ever even sit for your first law school class, you'll find yourself in the law library doing your reading. And when you're doing your reading, you're going to the you're gonna have to win this battle where it's very easy to read a page and read another page and read another page. And then all of a sudden, like, wake up and realize that you've been reading, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers, reading, you've been reading, but you have not, you don't have any idea what was on those last four pages that you just allegedly read. So I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to teach more than anything else on the reading comprehension is just the ability to like win the, that battle of will, force yourself to, to pay attention. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw subinfutination or the statute of quia emptoris on a reading comprehension passage, but you'll definitely be seeing those in law school <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and other similar words. <laughs> All right, should we move on to uh, these three and four? Yeah, do it. Sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna do these in combination, and I think they're related a lot to what you guys were talking about with prediction forwards, because I'm doing that all the time on logical reasoning. I I'm probably doing it in reading comprehension, but I know I'm doing it on LR. And so my first thing that I wrote was the conclusion reasoning are the most important part of arguments. Most students spend their time on the answer choices, and I thought of this the other day, 80% of the answer choices are wrong, and 100% are misleading. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> they're not your friends. <laughs> but that's where most people spend their time. 
And if you go in there without understanding what's going on, you're just looking back and forth without even like the right knowledge that would let you decide between these things. Um, and I talk to a lot of students and I'm like, do you understand the argument? I'm like, yeah, I understand the argument. I'm like, okay, tell me what the conclusion is. And they'll tell me something that is actually not the conclusion. It's like, it's similar to it. It uses many of the same words, but they're missing this little thing that means it's not actually what the author said. Um, and being clear on what the conclusion says is actually a higher goal than uh, many people realize. Um, in, in my explanations, a big feature of the logical reasoning ones is for all the arguments, I list the conclusion and the reasoning. And so someone who's like not sure if they're doing this right can use that as an error check. They can do an exercise where they go through 10 questions, identify what they believe to be the conclusion reasoning, and, and check what I wrote and see if it matches. And if it doesn't, like, then think about what the difference is and why it's that. Also, I've, I've noticed a lot of new questions that are just like, identify the conclusion. And to me, those are just the easiest questions possible because I've been doing it on all kinds of arguments, but a decent number of people get them wrong. Um, but so it's doesn't pretty... the conclusion always come last? <laughs> yeah, doesn't it always come after thus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, folks, that was LSAT nerd teacher yeah, that was, humor. Yeah, sar sarcasm. That is not, not true. <laughs> Neither of those things were true. Um, yeah, so figuring out the conclusion, so what are they saying, and the reasoning, why are they saying it, and what part is fluff, if any? I found actually like, there's not usually that much fluff in the modern LSAT arguments, but a lot of people will misidentify some element of the reasoning as being fluff. Uh, so if you're very clear on those, and then you take the next step, which is, what's wrong with this? Because in an everyday argument, like when you're listening to us, you have to think, like, what are Graham, Nathan, and Ben saying? Why are they saying it? And are they right? Because maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. But on the LSAT, you actually don't have to think about that third question. You know they're wrong. So that makes it significantly easier to find the flaw because you know there is one. At least for the, all the questions that are strength and weaken and all the flawed argument type questions. So before I even look at the answers, I'll identify the conclusion reasoning. Often reread the stimulus and while asking, why is this wrong? And I'll usually have some kind of a prediction where then I quickly look through the answers and if I match it's almost certainly right. I want to draw a distinction between if you look at the answers and you don't know what you're looking for and an answer looks tempting, then there's pretty good odds it's a trap. But if you know you're looking for something and you find it, it's almost never a trap because um, it's not something that just like you found by the side of the road and it looks tempting. It's, it's actually what you were looking for. So the conditional odds of it being a trap are it's, it's a far better choice. And so this tip, I, I guess you didn't maybe read the tips um, specifically, but tip three was the conclusion and reasoning are the most important part of arguments. And then you transitioned into tip four is... Yeah, combined. I feel those two are very much like yeah. the same tip, just different elements of it. Tip four is almost all logical reasoning questions can be prephrased. And by prephrased, Graham just means answering the question before you read the answer choices. Um, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think you make a couple points there that, that, are, that really make a lot of sense, Graham. Um, the idea of if you make a prediction and then you actually find it in those answer choices, it's, it's 
it is almost always the answer. I think students uh, sometimes lead themselves astray there because they they will they'll say like, "Oh, that sounds too good to be true." <laughs> um, but if it sounds too good to be true, it, a lot of times it is. I mean, it it is the answer. It's just that's it's just it's, it is that easy. Especially if you've predicted what you think the answer should be, and then it's actually there. Uh, that is a lot of times going to be the answer. Um, you said earlier, you said something about the answer choices not being your friends, and I, I think that's really why you have to prephrase. Yeah, I wanted to just add a very brief thing there. The answers are traps, but only if you don't know what's going on. There's no case that I know of where I know what's going on and the right answer is like this weird, twisted thing intended to mislead me. It's, it's obviously correct if I know what's happening. What people call traps are when they're missing something that makes something otherwise wrong seem tempting. A, a good example of a trap would be... So if you, if you feel sure about the answer, it's not... Yeah. A, a, a good example of a trap would be... Are you asking me for... No, I'm, I'm gonna, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to give you an example. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. <laughs> here, here it comes. Um, on, a, on an argument part, uh, question like a, a strategy of argumentation where they're specifically asking you about an one part of the argument and the role that was played in the argument by that part of the argument a lot of times a trap answer will start off uh, it was a intermediate conclusion of the argument which ultimately supported and then they'll just misstate the conclusion of the argument yeah so that's a trap if you are careful, you shouldn't fall into that because you're going to read the whole answer choice. But it is definitely a trap for somebody who's trying to rush in that case. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we could go uh, through other examples. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry, I just it reminded me of something, actually. Um, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think of this. But I, I feel like um, as I'm going through explanations in class, as I'm going through each of the individual answer choices, I will often... Um, stop maybe somewhere near the beginning of an answer choice and say, okay, I know this is wrong, moving on. Whereas um, in terms of selecting the correct answer, and I think this is kind of what you were saying before, Nathan, uh, you have to read the whole thing. So the first part of it might be good, but I'm not going to say, yay, great, found the answer until I've read the entire answer to the end. Because I, I do feel like a lot of people will start reading an answer and it will be something close to what they predicted and their prediction was actually even correct. But they, they the first part is good enough and so then they say, great, it's, it's B. And it's like, we'll read the end and the last three words just totally throw it off. So I feel like you can eliminate, I guess my point is I feel like you can eliminate without reading the whole answer, but at least in my experience, but you can't choose the answer without reading the whole thing. Yeah, or at least, I guess Graham might call that conditional, what did you say earlier? Conditional uh, elimination yeah. or something like that? Um, oh, like soft elimination. Yeah. I said yeah. conditional when I meant like conditional odds of like if you made a prediction, then conditional on that your and you find it, it's probably right. But soft eliminate would be like, eh, I don't think this is right. I'm not, not going to say like definitely wrong because I see a lot of students false eliminate the right answer. But like, I don't think this is it. I'm going to move on. Yeah, and that's what, Ben, that's what you're saying, right? You read the first three yeah. words of an answer, and sometimes you can go, well, I doubt that's going to be it. And you're not, like, saying forever this is not the right answer, no matter what. But you are saying, 
I'm going to read the rest of the answer choices before I give this guy another look. Yeah, I guess that's true most of the um, time. There, there are some cases where I am eliminated flat out. Uh, like if it's... Uh, if I, yeah, go ahead, Graham. Sorry. I was going to say, I, I actually would go stronger than what you said, Nathan, and I think that's what Ben was saying, that like there's a lot where I'm just like, I'd be 98% certain it's not it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, saying, I, I do that too, but yeah. I also eliminate all five answers with some regularity. <laughs> Yeah. At which point, then I kind of have to lower my standards a little bit. Yeah. I guess it just depends on the, the question sometimes. You know, like if it's a role question and they're, I don't know, if they're asking for something that is a premise and I know it's not a conclusion, so it's not like an intermediate conclusion or something, and the answer choice starts out by saying it's the it's the main conclusion of blah, blah, blah already, or even if it's just a conclusion of something, and I know it's not a conclusion, I'll just stop there and eliminate usually. So, I, I don't know. That's what I'm no. thinking of. But in general, I mean, you have to be careful, and, and maybe a soft eliminate is better, especially at first when you're starting now. Yeah, I think I think you also have to like moderate all this advice depending on where you're, you're scoring. Like someone who's scoring 170 can afford to be a lot more cavalier in getting rid of wrong answers than someone who's scoring 145 because the person with 170 has just got a much better highly trained intuition for that. Whereas at 145, you have to be much more sensitive to the idea of like a, a false elimination. Yeah. Cool, makes sense. Um, should we move on to number five? Yeah. Um, this is the one I'm least sure about because I actually looked in the Oxford Dictionary recently for like some and most and I couldn't get a a definite definition that like proved the way the LSAT uses them is actually the English definition of the word. Um, but every other word that isn't some or most or usually or probably the ones that are synonymous with most is just the way the dictionary uses it. There's no LSAT English and there's no like LSAT world where facts that are true in the LSAT are not true in real life. It, I mean, they, they try to stick to real life as, as was known at the time they wrote the question. So if you don't know something, it doesn't mean you don't know it in the LSAT. It means you just don't know it. And looking it up in a dictionary would be a good idea because they're, the LSAT's a, a test of precision. And to be precise about English, then you need to know precise definitions. Yeah, I mean, I, I when I read this tip the, that the LSAT uses the dictionary definitions of words, it actually made me think about the fact that the LSAT, I think, uses multiple definitions of the same words. Yeah. And, and that that's one thing that I find students, especially kind of in the middle or lower levels, they read an argument and they, they read it one way and they just understand it one way but sometimes you need to actually reread that premise or reread that argument and, and say, oh, well, when they said whatever word, there might actually be two different ways that I could have interpreted that. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. And I was just looking at the example you gave in here, Graham, if you don't mind sharing that, the one about yeah. psychic. Yeah, there was a question on prep test 71. Uh, if you have already taken or haven't taken prep test 71, you might not uh, skip ahead because it'll be a very mild spoiler. But there was a question that used the word psychic. And most people when they hear that, they think like, ooh, mind reader. And the question was actually talking about paranormal activities. 
but in context, they said a psychic connection between family members and like a, those who share a close bond. From the context, there was no way to read it other than the secondary definition of psychic, which is like relating to the solar mind. And they basically meant family members are close to each other. They know each other well. Um, and it, the question did not make sense if you use the first reading of psychic, and it did make sense if you used the second meaning. Or, I mean, the argument would have been idiotic if they used the first meaning, so it doesn't make sense to interpret an author's statements as being really stupid. Um, you should make their argument as the best way it can in terms of how you interpret their words. Yeah, and I've seen, I've seen other examples of that with secondary definitions. Awesome. So that's the five things you've learned from uh, writing thousands of LSAT explanations. I'm sure you've probably got five more things you could write about, but I'll post that um, to the show notes. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple more things. We can just make these quick because we're kind of running out of time. But um, yeah, sure. you're the moderator of the Reddit uh, LSAT forum. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Reddit, for those who don't know it, is this really big website that has lots of different forums. So you can find a forum in just about everything. So if you're in New York, then it'd be reddit.com slash r slash New York, and there'd be discussions of stuff happening in New York. So the LSAT forum is the one talking about the LSAT. And Reddit is a big place, so Reddit's LSAT forum grew pretty rapidly once I got it started because because of Reddit's size. So it's probably the second biggest LSAT form. Top Law Schools is the biggest one. And it works like other forms, sort of, but it's got a few differences where you can upvote and downvote stories. So if someone submits something and it's popular, then people vote it up and it'll stay near the top longer. And it if it's not popular, people will vote it down or just not do anything with it, and it will sink away. And then people can comment on stories, and they go kind of threaded. So if you have a look, you can see, like, there's a series of replies. Um, is that a volunteer? Uh, yeah, Reddit's all um, – every subreddit is done by the, the moderators, and, like, someone can create a subreddit as they choose. So you could you could make one on – if it doesn't already exist, you could make one on anything. And Reddit doesn't run any of the stuff. Reddits, they leave it up to the moderators to create and run them. So you just decided, oh, there's no LSAT forum, I'll make an LSAT forum, and then now you're the moderator. Yeah, pretty much. There, there was one, uh, it had been made by Manhattan LSAT back in the day, but I think it was by a company they hired that forgot to tell them they made it. So <laughs> it was just, it was inactive for like three years, and it, it still had like 15 posts and like 100 people subscribed so like clearly people wanted there to be one but there was no active moderator so I just asked for it. Interesting. Um, how much time do you spend on, on Reddit? Uh, so when I first started it I had become I had become a Redditor and I spent a lot of time on subreddits and that's why I kind of learned the ropes of like how it worked and what people expected to see and I spent a lot of time in the first like two to four weeks uh writing articles for the the sidebar is like a thing where you can find posted articles that are stay permanently there. And I just searched all of Reddit for anyone talking about the LSAT and would comment and say like, hey, come check this out. I was probably did like 80 hour weeks on it for like two to four weeks. But then once it passed this threshold, it, it became pretty self-sustaining. So I just kind of check in once a day and 
see what's been posted, answer a question if no one's given a good answer, uh, check the spam queue, and it's it's pretty low maintenance now. Um, I want soon to sort of revamp some of the sidebar and have more. Uh, Reddit is something called Ask Me Anythings. Um, you guys could do one actually if you're interested in doing that. I think you already done did one there before, right, Nathan? Yeah, I did one like a I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. Now. Yeah, so there's been a few. Um, basically, you just say, "Hey, I'm Ben Olson. I teach the LSAT in Washington. Ask me anything." And then for like the next day, as people ask you questions about the LSAT, you just answer all of them, and they've got a pretty like honest, straightforward tone. Um. So I'm I'm looking for ways to like bring more of that in because usually Reddit like doesn't have uh, people from companies on subreddits. It's pretty non-commercial. But in the LSAT, the only people talking about the LSAT that aren't students are people that you know have courses and otherwise make money and but they give out lots of good information. So I've been I've actually been encouraging companies to come and post in the subreddit, and then everyone's been pretty good about not being spammers and just contributing good information. Um, it's definitely a, a place where you have to sort of like learn the norms of how people, what people tend to like and dislike because they're different from other forms. But other than that, it's a pretty friendly place. Just, I have one last quick question. I noticed you, this post, the top five, uh, the things that you learned Post that we've been talking about. You posted that on Law Schooly. Um, are, yeah. Do you have like a, an ongoing relationship with them, or uh, this was just at a certain? I read these things that you should make guest posts so people hear about your site. So I wrote this one and just like asked a few people to see who are interested, but I have no other relationship with them. Okay, cool. I I don't know really much ab- about them other than they've been growing. It seems very quickly. Yeah, they're. Uh, from what I can tell of them, the LSAT's kind of a funny niche in that like you need LSAT expertise to do in it or to do well in it. So a lot of the people who do like internet marketing in other niches have just been kept out of the LSAT because of the very high domain expertise. Um, from what I can tell of them, they actually like know marketing and they know the LSAT. So they've been able to sort of adopt kind of the standard internet marketing stuff to the LSAT niche. So they're, they they give good information from what I've read. Just sort of like, you know, all the like thousands of questions people ask about the LSAT, like what are the LSAT test dates in 2014 or right. should I do this on LSAT test day? They've got articles on all of that stuff. Cool. I think that's about all I've got. Ben, do you have other questions for Graham? No, this is great. Thanks so much for coming, Graham. Yeah, no problem. There's actually one thing. I don't know if we have like five more minutes. Sure, yeah. Of course, something I well, wanted to like working out a theory of, and I wanted to bounce an idea off you. It's about outside knowledge and assumptions. Okay. What do you say to your students about like the use of outside knowledge on the LSAT? Um, well, a lot of times, if the question is like a must-be-true question, I'm going to say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you know about nutrition. What matters, because this is a must-be-true question, what matters is just what facts are on the page. I guess that might have been my my pat answer. Okay. Um, Because I I hear from tons of students, they say like, oh, you can't use outside knowledge on the LSAT. But, and I agree with something like nutrition. Uh, You can't 
and here's why that I tell them you can use outside knowledge in two ways. Like one, if it's something that literally every person would agree with, yeah, then it's a warranted assumption. And something about nutrition would actually not be like because there's an ongoing debate about say like is saturated fat good or bad for you. Um, that's not something that you can assume is true or false. But if it's something like grass is green, or I saw one question about uh, what was it? Okay, do you remember the one about like horse spleens and seal spleens? I do not remember that one. Uh, yeah, it's on. It's a question a lot of people ask about because the right answer is so the seals have. They're saying something about the seal spleen supports her ability to dive underwater. And the right answer says horses have spleens that can store oxygen, something like that. A lot of people are like, this doesn't work. We have no idea that a horse spleen is like a seal spleen. But every reasonably, every reasonable scientist would agree that mammalian spleens are similar. Um, so everyone who knows anything about spleens would say like, yeah, there's, if something works in a horse, it probably works in seals. Um, and I think that like outside knowledge was actually required to answer the question. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I agree. I, th- I think that the students out there can definitely can, can take that to heart that, that if it's common sense or if it's something that everyone would agree on. Yeah. Like literally everyone. Water flows downhill or yeah. water's wet or, you know, there are, yeah. there are leaps like that. And I think that students get so much in, I guess maybe it happens more with like higher performing students because they're kind of getting it and they've, they've like understood this idea that I have to watch out for traps and stuff, but then they'll be like arguing with an answer choice and saying like, well, but that requires you to assume that, that a umbrella keeps water off of your head. And it's like, well, okay, but (laughs) that's not a, major leap and yeah it does not say that an umbrella keeps water off of your head but that is what an umbrella is for and we yep. all know that and we all understand that so to that yeah to that in extent you can absolutely use outside knowledge yeah the other way i use it is in prephrasing where like I remember, this is a really easy question it's about police and it said like they ought to be allowed to drink in nightclubs and from outside knowledge we know that they were undercover. So we know that you'd stand out if you don't drink in nightclubs. That's not actually like literally true, but it's a reasonable hypothesis for what the right answer might say. So that was my prephrase and it said that. So I, all the time I use stuff I know from like other places to guess at what the answer might be without assuming that it like has to be true. Absolutely. Especially when you're arguing with an argument you read an argument, you're looking for a flaw, you want to tell the author why they're full of shit, and of course you, you are using things that you know to be true in real life to argue with that. Yeah, I just wanted to say that explicitly because I find a lot of students are just like holding back from using that because of this idea that they can't use outside knowledge. They're like sort of putting their thought process in a straitjacket because they think they can't reason that way. Yeah, that that would seem like just an overly technical approach to the test. Maybe you know people who have read too many LSAT books and they're yeah. not—they're <laughs> just like not engaging with the test on a debating level. Yeah, 
Okay, that was that was the only other thing I wanted to. Uh, talk yeah, about. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I'm sure that is a misconception out there. People thinking that you can't use outside knowledge ever on the LSAT, and that is wrong. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for having me as a guest. Hey, fun. yeah. Let me give you just a couple little plugs here. Um, Graham Blake is an LSAT writer, author, tutor in Montreal. Uh, he's available via Skype. His website is lsathacks.com. Yep. Yeah, I can send you the like three links everyone should be aware of on my site. Yeah, we'll put uh, we'll put those into the show notes. So, yeah. great. Thanks a lot, Graham. Yeah. Uh, cool. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care.